BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one size fits all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Friend of a Friend podcast. I'm your host, Olivia Perez. If you've been in an airport in the past few years, chances are you've seen away suitcases in abundance. But just four years ago, Jen Rubio found herself stranded in an airport with a broken suitcase and not a single go-to brand to solve her problem. So in 2015, she and her co-founder, Steph Corey, decided to found Away, a luggage company that would change the way people travel today. The result was a collection of sleek luggages at an affordable price, complete with a portable charger and more travel essentials that emulate the modern traveler today. Away has sold over 1 million suitcases and counting worldwide and created a cult following of jet-setting customers who have made their product their most trusted travel companion. The company has raised over $156 million in support and recently announced their $1.4 billion valuation. In this episode, Jen and I talk about what it's really like to work in tech as a woman, how a coffee table book saved her business, and how she's determined to have it all at no expense. Here's my friend, Jen Rubio. So tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Where are you from? My upbringing, I mean, I don't know how far back you want to go, but I was born in- I want the, the origin story. The origin of Jen Rubio. <laughs> yes. A, I'm like, it started with a suitcase. And people are like, no, the, no, 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 the, real, the real origin. One. Um, so I was born in the Philippines. Um, and just a really lovely childhood there. I think growing up in a big, like, giant Filipino family, like 26 aunts and uncles on each side- Wait, what? Yeah, yeah. My so, mom and dad were each like one of, I don't know, 12 or 13. I don't even know. But you just have a brother, right? I have a brother and a sister. Okay. So it was me and my brother. We grew up in the Philippines. My sister was born here. Um, and just all my memories just have like dozens of people in them. Do you know what I mean? Like yes. at, we, dinner every night was like open door, people in and out. And it was like a really good sense of community. And I actually remember when I moved to... Um, New Jersey when I was like six or seven, I remember just being really lonely because I didn't have like all of these random cousins around all the time. And I think that's why I'm so like, like so outgoing now. And I also just like have, I mean, you know, I have tons of people at my house all the time, like even when I'm not there. And I I feel like that's like me trying to get back to my roots. But um, yeah, I grew up in a giant family in the Philippines. We moved to New Jersey. Why did you guys move? Um, I guess my parents just like wanted like a better life, you know. Um, I ha- We had aunts and uncles here too. So we joined some of my family here. Um, my mom, who is a dentist, like had to go back to school and do it all over again. So it was crazy seeing, like, you know, when you move from one country to another, like your degrees are like totally different, totally meaningless. Mm-hmm. Like you can't practice medicine. Um, so it was really crazy seeing my mom go from like this incredible, like, medical provider with patients and like we knew all of them to having to go back to school as like and as start my mom. From square one. Yeah, yeah and start from scratch. But but she went and did that. Um there are a lot of, you know, we had a place in the city. There were a lot of times where um, you know, we would go meet my mom after like her NYU classes and stuff. So it was it was a really crazy thing to witness because I had always known my mom growing up as like a dentist, an oral surgeon, she like she was like super established, and then like came here and, and started over. And it wasn't until I grew up that I realized how crazy that was. Yeah, 
That must have been a really interesting thing to see as like a young girl. Yeah, I mean, she and and it was it felt totally normal to me because like how did how, you don't know otherwise? Yeah, you don't. Yeah, you don't know that, that that's weird. But you know, other people's parents were like in their careers, and we we're like, you know, my dad's so support was so supportive. Uh, he passed away um, like seven years ago, but during that whole time, he would just remember like we would he would like pick us up from school. We would get in the car. And, like, go see my mom in the city because she had, like, a late class and we'd either all go home together or stay in the city. And that, to me, was was totally normal. And if I think about how that, like, feeds into my relationships now, like, my fiancé is so supportive of me and, like, just— Also, fiancé, congrats. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks. And just, like, he, he just totally goes out of his way to to do these things. And I have to remember, like, not to take that— for granted. Like it's really special that he does that. It was really special that my dad did that. Right. But I've always been surrounded with like that kind of support. Did you feel like it was difficult as a young girl, as an immigrant in New York and New Jersey? Yeah, I think um, there was definitely a sense of um, like I felt different, but I wasn't, you know, as a seven-year-old kid, I wasn't like, I'm an immigrant. This is Right. why I feel different. I was just like, oh, like I eat different food at home or, you know, like what I bring to lunch is like, like I remember begging my parents to to get me like boring, like Lunchables and things like that. And now I'm Love just Lunchables. like, why? Right. You know? Um, but yeah, I remember that stuff being different, but it wasn't like, you know, I didn't really get like made fun of or anything like that. So I don't think it was like a, a blatant, like I'm, I'm different and I'm being bullied type of thing. I was just like, something's off right. like, as a kid. And and I think when you're young, you just really want to fit in. So I remember like doing things to um, to try to be more like everyone else. You know, I remember I used to watch a ton of TV because like I spoke fluent English, but I didn't want to have an accent. So I used to like watch. You, did, you had an accent or you didn't want to have one? I, I think I think I had a slight one, but I just right. I remember being very conscious of like my voice and um, and how I sounded. So I would watch the news all the time as a kid and just like practice talking. So what were you passionate about when you were young? Um, you know, nobody ever asks me that. I think it's always interesting. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I always get asked that because I think that there's something that to be said about having some sort of an entrepreneurial spirit um, in tandem with kind of the way that you were in high school. Um, I danced. I was always on stage. I was a performer. So that mm-hmm. aspect I feel like has carried into my job today. Yeah, I know. It's an amazing question because I, if I think about, you know, what I used to do all the time, I was, um, I like read all the time. I was like one of the, I always had a book. There's like pictures of me as a kid where I'm just like, like in all different places and I'm like off to the side reading a book. And I remember, you know, like during meals, I'd be reading. Like I just like read so much and I actually miss reading as much as I used to. I, I would even read like, you know, like the back of like cereal boxes and things like that. I was just like obsessed with reading. Um, And then I would, uh, I'd always be in like long car rides with my dad and he would always ask me about what I was reading. So it was kind of like this like storytelling um, and I would always like, I remember one time he told me like I was reading a book and he asked me what it was about and I totally made up a totally different story. (laughs) But I guess like this like reading and storytelling has always been a passion of mine. Um, And I think... um, yeah, I always just was – I've always, like, craved, like, being around people um, and, like, that, that like, sort of sense of community that I had when I was, like, way younger. So I think I was looking for that all the time. But I wasn't, like, really that into sports. I wasn't really um, – I definitely wasn't passionate about sports. You know, I played them here and there. But it was more of, like, interacting with people in different ways. Like, you know how um, when you're younger – I don't know if you ever had those, like – kids play sets and stuff like the kitchen oh, set up and stuff so apparently I never used mine and I would like play these games where I would have to I like would set up a desk and have my own like little pretend office so as as a kid I like I just never did homework I never liked doing that stuff but I would like sit at home at a, a fake little office desk and I remember this I mean this didn't stop I remember when um, if we fast forward to like when I was in college my first internship where I had a desk and my own phone and, like, my own badge, I was like, this is amazing. 
Why it do was you like, think that is? I don't I don't know. I think part of it is um my parents didn't have office jobs, so it was fascinating to me. Like we I grew up like in and around like medical offices. Like, you know, my entire family is like in like nurse, doctors, dentists, surgeons, like in the medical field. So I the whole concept of it was really foreign to me. Like someone who went to work and had a computer and just sat there. Yeah. Um, and it was really fascinating to me. Even when I was like an intern or co-op, like as an adult, I was like, this is cool. I remember, and just as like a little background for the audience listening, um, Jen was on a panel that I moderated um, at House in Toronto back in April. And you had said something on that panel about how infatuated you were with the idea of being a businesswoman. Yeah. And yeah. I always found that really interesting because I think that that is, as a young girl, I think a lot of, I that's, that's not really something that you hear that often. And do you think that has to do with the fact that your family was doing something totally different? Or was there something that you saw as a child that inspired you to strive towards that? Yeah, I think there's always that, like, when you're surrounded by one thing and you're inundated with it and you're kind of expected to do it. Like, my mom is so bummed that none of us, like, I've, I'm doing what I'm doing now. My brother is an artist. My sister is, like, really into music. And she's like, wait, I, like, built this whole, like, dental practice empire. And there's, like, no one to take it over because, like, none of us were interested in it. But I think there's, like, that factor of you're surrounded by it. It's, like, all you know. And if you're a curious person, you're like, what what else is out there? Right. And I think that's why I was so fascinated by it. I think if I had been born into a family full of, like, entrepreneurs and like business people I would have gone into something else just because it was different you know um so I think that's like where the fascination took hold but um but yeah I mean it it makes sense and I I always think that you know whenever I, I talk about like what my mom does or what the rest of my family does it is very entrepreneurial like they all run their own businesses they all have to like get their own patients it's just like a different kind of entrepreneurship, but I've always been around that kind of energy. And you went to Penn State, right? Yeah, for a hot minute. What did you study while you were there? I studied supply chain, which was like... Is that a major? Yeah. So it's a major. And I don't... Back when I went to school, it was a major in like three or four schools, which was actually amazing because this was going into the recession. And um, basically everyone who had finance jobs no longer had finance jobs. Right. Um but because supply chain was like a super new major, um, all of the big CPG companies were recruiting from like Penn State, Arizona State, and the like Northwestern. There's like a few schools that had it. Um, so as a sophomore, I got like my first internship at Johnson & Johnson. And then I got a second one. And then I, got, I just like kept getting these internships. And then I took a semester off to do a co-op program, which is like you just take the semester off to work. And I was just like enamored by by the whole thing, like definitely not by what I was doing because I was doing like spreadsheets so that Walmart could get their baby powder, you know, like things like that. But I was just like, oh, like an office job. This is so foreign to me and I'm like really into it. Was there something that you wish you studied in college that you think would help you as an entrepreneur today? Even in your brief time there? Yeah. I mean, listen, I think it's it's so hard because I'm like, I'm fine right. now. Totally. And and so much of what like the reason I'm good at what I do is because I've I have just been I've like known where to look for the answers. You know, like right. I've learned it as I learned it as I go. I mean, I I do wish though that there I I speak a lot at colleges and um I do a lot of like guest teaching and stuff. And I think um universities now have like this entrepreneurship track and I'm not sure what they're teaching there. I'm actually very curious about that a yeah, lot. Yeah, it's very it's, it's because I think really it's interesting. It's definitely a mentality and I don't know if it's something that can be taught. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that's what I'm getting at where it's like I learned everything I know now through like resilience and like through just having like the right mindset and like being curious and, and knowing who to ask and I think technical skills you can always pick up. Like I am not ashamed like I think last year I was like, "You know what? I should really brush up on Excel so I can like dig into financial models that, like, the team is sending me. You know what I mean? Right. And I, like, I'm not afraid to do that. And I think now we have so much more access to learning technical skills. So I'm not, you know, I think for a lot of people, the structure of college 
and the structure of having like a set list of classes that you take to get a major works, but it doesn't teach you like the grit and the mentality that you need to have your own company or to do your own thing. Totally. I think that there's a missing link. I would hope that in those entrepreneurship classes, they're teaching finance, like how to do your taxes, how to form an LLC, Mm -hmm. all of those things. Because I went to school for journalism. I did a little bit of fashion history, art history, and I left with a great degree. But when I went to start my company, there were so many things that I completely overlooked and messed up on and set me back because I just, no one ever told me. Yeah. And and um, if I think about, so my co-founder, um, Steph Corey, she went to business school. She was at, she, at Columbia. And so many of the classes that she took that I actually think are incredible were like, you know, leadership and management and how to coach a team and how to like hire the right people. And those are the things that you need to know. Totally. I mean, I think about so much of what our culture is, is because, you know, she had very, she had like a very strong point of view on the type of culture we wanted to build and why it's so important to manage people a certain way. And she taught me a lot of that. And I think that's, that's super great and useful. But I think, you know, I, I took a marketing class in college. I have no idea what I learned or if any of that is relevant now. Pro tip, when I was having a tough time figuring it all out, I used to read the Harvard Business Review. Um, they have like 10 different books on specific things um, that business owners should know how to do. So Amazing. on managing people, um, there was one on um, like just financial models. It really helped me. So that's a little pro tip. Um, but where you went from Johnson & Johnson to, where are we after that, Neutrogena? Yeah, so Neutrogena is owned by Johnson Johnson. Right. So those, you just, just moved within. I just yeah. moved within. Um, and at that point, so I had a, um, I was part of a co-op program and then I like asked to stay. I, and that's where I ended up like not finishing. I just like never went back to school after that. Um, and then like, yeah, it was just like super corporate. I was kind of into it, but also I didn't realize how corporations worked. You know, I was like, right. Oh, cool. This is interesting. I, um, would be in these meetings with like marketing people or like what they called marketing. And um, it was, and to me, they were always like the ones in the meetings who said the most interesting things. So then I started, um, I was like very bold and like set up, you know, asked to have lunch with all of these like very senior people in in the marketing organization. And um, they're like very giving with their time and and spent some time with me. And I asked a ton of questions and I, I like got very interested in what they were doing. And I was like, oh, maybe that's my next move. Like, mind you, I don't know why I had any business doing that because I was, like, basically just an intern who had been there forever. Um, I didn't have my degree. I I actually looked back on a few emails I'd sent during that time, and I was, like, totally an idiot. <laughs> so, but in my head, I was, like, I'm going to go after this. And that's when I found out that you needed an MBA to, like, do what they do. And I was, like, well, I can't get my MBA. So that's not happening. And this was around the time that I was, like, super interested in social media um, it was like in the MySpace days, but like Tumblr had just started, um, Twitter had just launched and I was super interested in it personally. Um, and I just like saved up a bunch of money and I was like, I'm going to go into, I'm going to like pursue this thing that I'm curious about, which is like s- social media. Like I was like, I feel like businesses can use this. What attracted you to marketing? Um, I think it was like the connection with the people. So I was like, I was like the person on the other other side of the spreadsheet, like doing like portfolio analysis for consumer products. And um, that was not that interesting to me, nor was I good at it. And I think it was like, oh, here's like a bunch of tools and technology and platforms where people can connect with other people. And I'd always been fascinated by that. Actually, this reminds me like when I was a kid, I used to make websites all the time. I'm like, Whoa. Yeah, on like GeoCities and AngelFire. I'm like older than you, so I don't know if you <laughs> remember this stuff. I have stuff. no idea what those are. Yeah, but. they're like these like uh, old like website platforms and, you know, oh God, I wish I still had them. Like, And you'd have like a website with like a little counter of like how many people came to the site at the bottom. And I'm going to span back to when I asked what you were passionate about when you were younger and yeah. say that here's your full circle here, moment. Here it is. Mm-hmm. And I just totally, I totally forgot about this. Yeah. But I was, I was really interested in that. And there was like this, oh my God, you would like make these websites and you would join web rings. So I had one about like, I mean, I don't know, like let's say I made a website about shoes. I would join like a web ring for 
shoe websites and you would like click through to all these different websites about shoes that other people made. Anyway, it was a wild time. Um, <laughs> totally. But I, I literally, I, that memory just came back to me. There you go. I've never talked about that. Yeah. I mean, I think if you, if there's like one overarching theme in my life, it's that I was curious about something. So I just went after it and I've never really been scared to do that. Do you think that curiosity is an important facet of being an entrepreneur? Yeah. I mean, I think if you're not curious, then you just try to do things by the book and the book doesn't tell you how to do anything or there is no book. You know what I mean? I think you are, um, I mean, I, curiosity is something I look for now, even like as we hire people, because I'm just like, if you're not interested in knowing what the answer is, then you're not going to, you're not going to find it. You're just going to like, it's, it's like if you took the top search result in Google for what it was like all the time, if and that's like all you believed. And I think everything I've done, whether it's like I left a corporate job to literally like tweet for food trucks and, um, and like cafes that like shut down. And like, that's like what I left Johnson Johnson to do. I was like doing social media for businesses who were like, what, what is this? You know? Um, like that's what led me to that. And after that, I was like, you know, curious about, um, like Facebook pages. And I ended up working at an agency that like literally made Facebook pages and Facebook apps for, big brands. Like, Crazy. Yeah, so it was, so anyway, it like my curiosity led me to all of these different things and I think even now at Away, like we are always curious about like what to do next or how to do it differently. Um, and I think I see a lot of companies who are like, sometimes I look at companies that launch and I'm like, they think they're following the Away playbook and they're like, oh, Away did this, so we're going to do this, but they don't they're not like thinking about why we did something or how like really digging into how we did it. And that's the important part. Like I think if I made a list of everything Away did over the last three years and like handed it to someone right now who is starting a company, it wouldn't be successful because like there was reasons for all of those things and why we did them at the right time. And we only figured that out like because we were curious. I need you to touch a little bit on the food truck phase of your life yeah. because I'm L.A. born and bred, and that was a huge thing in Los Angeles. Yeah, I, like, lived in Culver City, like, you know, like, drove through LAX every day. It was so weird. Um, anyway, these, like, you know, obviously food trucks have always been, like, a big part of, um, like, L.A. culture. Um, but do you remember when they would, like, start tweeting where they were? The grilled cheese truck. Yeah, the grilled cheese truck. Followed that my whole high like school. Like Kogi barbecue. Kogi barbecue. Like mm-hmm. all, but so I was like part of that wave of people who were like, oh, there's this platform called Twitter, which launched in 2007. And you can like say where the truck is and people will show up. And that to me was incredible. Like the fact that I could go on this account, there were people following it. I would say the truck is, you know on this, on La Cienega and whatever. And then 30 minutes later, there's 100 people waiting in line to get food from the truck. I was like, like, that to me is like marketing in its purest form. Totally. And I think that's like the cornerstone of what we see today being the essence of community in terms of social media. It's, okay, there's this whole digital presence and you can have millions of followers and, and have such an engaged community. But the most exciting part about it is when that comes offline and you're in real life. And getting to meet new people and actually have this like physical community. Exactly. And and that's what I loved. And I, I think, you know, a lot of times people um, talk about my time at Warby Parker where I did social media for them. The, the exciting parts of that are, are like when you can make that real life, you know, and to me, that's what's exciting about what we're doing at Away. Like we have stores, we do offline stuff. And it's like, yes, Away is very good at social media. It's very good digital marketing. Um you know, and and the way people do it in this day and age, but like seeing that come to life like offline is is really incredible, and and that stems all the way back from those like taco truck days, um, and and this was before like you had like the big food truck festivals and like and before like Abbott Kinney closed down First for Fridays, yeah, yeah, exactly. I used, I used to think that like going to First Fridays when I was in high school was the coolest was thing the best. Ever. That for me was like the beginning. Um, I was like. He, that showed me in a very in a very big but also very small way how you could do something online and it translates to something real offline. And that led me to to so many different things. So that was also the year of like 
um, a Foursquare and like checking in and there were like all these cool things you could do. And I remember just like thinking like my ideas got bigger and bigger from like a food truck to, you know, how do you promote a movie using all these different platforms and um, and everything we're talking about now is like so obvious and so simple, but back then it wasn't. And then to be at Warby Parker running social media, which was a huge shift for like retail and e-commerce. Yeah, the Warby thing, I remember I was there and um, Instagram had just launched and I was like trying, you know, I was telling Neil and Dave, I was like, there's there's this new platform called Instagram. We should join it. And they're like, okay, whatever. <laughs> and I had no idea. Like, you had no idea what it's going to be. Like, right. it could be, like, another platform that just died or whatever. But if I think about the stuff that we did on Instagram, I mean, or even Facebook at the time, you know, the whole, like, encouraging people to do their home try-on of, like, their five pairs and posting it on Facebook to let random strangers comment on which glasses they should get. Like, I was, we were doing that on Tumblr. We were doing that on Facebook. Um, like, that whole concept of, like, user-generated content was, like, totally new. Um, the whole concept of influencers was totally new. And now, like, there's careers built on this. At the time, I was like, I'm going to get 10 people from Tumblr and get them to come to this dinner and, like, they're going to wear Warby Parker glasses. That was, like, a crazy thing. Is there which, a, which is so funny to think about. This is kind of a weird question, but do you have a tip for navigating new waters like that? Because it, it sounds like you just had, like, this crazy tenacity and you were like, we're going to do it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of it is, like, having the conviction but also having the support of my bosses. You know, like, I couldn't have done it without them. And they're just like, okay, like, let's try it. Um, I think nowadays there's so much around, like, what are the – like – it's it's so nice because I think, you know, when I was, like, navigating this, there weren't, like, the metrics and KPIs and, like, it was, like, all gut. It was, like, we're going to do this. Those and were then, the days. Yeah, those were the days. <laughs> and now everyone's, like, okay, what's, like, what's, what's the, the engagement rate? What's the return on this? And, and that's so important. But I think it's also really important for everyone to remember that you're not going to have that stuff for the really new things. Like, things that have never been done before, you're not going to know how to measure. So you either have to, like, have faith and do it and then figure out if it worked or not. Um, but by the time something is, like, super measurable, it's like it's already it's done. Like, someone's already done it. And then it's just, like, a marketing tactic. So I think having that balance of, like, hey, this is something new. We can't really measure it. But, like, we have a really good gut instinct for it. And, and let's try it and see. Um, and then pairing that with like tried and true things that like where you can measure ROI, like that that balance is really important. I love that tip because I do think that there has been such a shift to the numbers when it comes to marketing these days. Mm -hmm. And while I do think that's crucial, obviously, to drive business, there is a sense of community that always needs to come, uh, I think, from these initiatives that feel soulful and not mm -hmm. just about what's in your mind. Yeah, and and, you know, like every day there are brands born that are like, um, you know, they launch a Shopify site. You can go buy Facebook ads. You can pour money into there. You can, you see how many people are converting. But, like, those aren't brands. Those are just, like, websites who sell things. And I think to really be, like, real brands and real communities, like, have this commitment to doing things that aren't totally measurable. Um, you know, obviously, as you become a bigger business, like, and as you scale, it is really important to have have that balance. And I think that's even why away we have, um, you know, we have like the brand marketing team and like the growth marketing team. And, you know, the brand marketing team is actually super day driven and measures a lot of stuff, but they also um, know that a lot of the new things aren't totally measurable. Speaking of brands with soul and talking about away, I would love to hear the away origin story. I was at Zurich airport. My suitcase broke. Um, Embarrassing moment for sure, but you know, I it wasn't like my suitcase broke, and I was like, "Oh, let's start a luggage company." I got home. I was living in London at the time. I was asking my friend, and my friends were like, "You know, I'll go to Fashion Week. They travel all the time. They traveled for work." Um, I was like, "What suitcase do you use? Does anyone have a suitcase that they can recommend to me?" And everyone's like, "Oh, I don't know what brand my suitcase is, or..." Um, yeah, I have one, but it was just like my mom gave it to me or um, or I have one, but I hate it. Like don't like, – there's no recommendations. And again, um, 
this is like a world where everyone is obsessed with every brand, like everything they do, and and just, there's no brand that people are excited about in the luggage space. So I guess that got me thinking about, you know, how come, you know, like the Samsonites, the Toomeys of the world, like all of these brands who've been around for so long, they've just totally become commodities. Like even people, you know, whether you spent $100 on an American tourister bag or I don't know, $700 on a Toomey bag, like it didn't matter to you um, because there's just like no brand love in that space. So that's what actually got me excited where like not the thought of, you know, making luggage, which actually ended up being super exciting and now I'm obsessed with it. But um, but the thought of like building a brand in a space where there, there was no loyalty. Um, so that's how we started. I, um, I was thinking about it and then I called Steph who had worked with me at Warby Parker. Uh, she's like my work wife while we were there and she'd gone off to business school and I'd moved to London and I'm telling her about it. And um, at that point it wasn't like, we're going to start this company. I was like, no, this this company should exist. It's so crazy that there isn't one already. And she was the one who was like, we should do this. Like we, we are, we're the ones who are the best equipped people in the world to do this, given our background, given how passionate we are about travel. Um, and I moved to New York and slept on her couch and we started the company. I love that. I love particularly about that story that you guys set out to fill a void. I think that's so important in businesses today because I do think yeah. the market is so oversaturated. And I think I also have an extreme amount of respect for everybody in the, in the industry today because to start a brand is really difficult. But I think a lot of brands are started just to have one and not yes. to fill. Can we talk about that? Yeah. Because – I mean, I know you see this all the time where someone's like, I just want to like, ha- I just want to be a founder. Right. And you're like, of what? Of what? And it's founder like, oh. fatigue, I think. Yeah. Because, I, because it's see. also like very, um, you know, culturally, like it's very glamorous to be a founder, an entrepreneur, to like do your own thing. And, um, and no one ever talks about what that actually means. But, but yeah, I think, I mean... Don't get me wrong. It is much harder now to find a void. But Absolutely. people are like, how did it happen so fast? Like, how did you get so much momentum? And it's because we were fulfilling a real need versus just like creating another product or creating another line and trying to get it out there. And I think that's what we think about all the time with new products. Um, we're going into apparel. We're going to wellness. Obviously, clothes and skincare and wellness are like super saturated markets. So... I'm always challenging the team to think about like what like I don't want a way to just be like putting random things into this world. Like what need are we filling? Like what what do people really want that they don't have yet? And how are we um how are we the experts in that? And how do we tell that story? Because otherwise you're just like, you know, the world doesn't need like another random face mist. When I talk about a way going to apparel and wellness, like if we're just making stuff that doesn't really fill a need or tie back to our mission of, of better travel, then there's no point in doing it. And I think it's interesting because travel is so specific. I mean, to me, and yes, I'm so biased. I'm the biggest away fan ever. I have like a whole <laughs> room of suitcases, especially at my family's house. Um, but like the thoughtfulness that goes that went into the design and the extras within the suitcase is like un, unparalleled. Like no other suitcase company comes with that can you speak to the design and thought process behind that yeah and I'm glad that comes through because like the conversations that we have like at away are really centered around this so I think part of it stems from the fact that um I think one of the reasons Warby Parker what or is so successful is because you know of like the customer feedback and they're constantly iterating and we just took that to like really took it to heart it's like being customer obsessed is our number one thing. We like listen to our customers. We incorporate all of their feedback into our products. But even when we were first making the first suitcase, you know, Steph and I have no experience in luggage. Um, so it was like that curiosity that drove us to be like, why is, you know, this luggage is supposed to be supposedly the best. Why? Like this luggage is not marketed as anything. And we really dug into that. Um, and we realized that as we were designing our own luggage, that the only way this would be like really special is if we actually asked people what they needed. So um, I think what that results in is like it's never really a list of like marketable features. Like there's one feature that 
some people like are crazy about and it's the laundry bag. So in in the suitcase, there's a laundry bag that rolls up into this like little pocket and it zips shut and it's like and you can remove it. And Instead of stealing them from every hotel you're in. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Which is what we and people people would say that. But we didn't come up with that because we were like because we went on ebags.com and saw that all the suitcases had a laundry bag and they didn't. We came up with that because we talked to like dozens and dozens of people. We ended up talking to over 800 people as we were designing the bag. And one of the things that kept coming up was that people would steal laundry bags from hotel rooms or people have like would like shove their clothes into plastic bags and and not know anything. So it was such a small little insight that led to literally this thing that people are obsessed about that when they discover, you know, we don't market it. We're not going to put out a billboard that's like there's a laundry bag in this suitcase. Right, but it's an added perk. It's an added perk and it's something that like speaks to how thoughtfully designed it was. And and we put that level of thought into like literally every aspect of the bag. I mean, there's things like um, there was one holiday season where we came out with dop kits where it's like how can you reinvent a dop kit? Like we're not sitting here saying we're reinventing anything, but we're just looking at it to make sure there's super thoughtful little details. So in that dop kit, there was like a place to put your toothbrush like separately so that you don't need like a toothbrush cover or like it's not just like floating around in there with all your stuff. Like we have um, a bag called the everywhere bag that sits perfectly on top of your suitcase because as you know, it slides in, it slides on the handle. Like it's the best thing. Every woman (laughs) who's ever traveled knows like the pain of like your purse falling off when you're building the suitcase and you're like, it's actually the best thing of all time. I mean, I'm obsessed with it, but I don't, and some people don't even know this. There's a hidden pocket at the bottom where you can put shoes oh, yeah, or the wet stuff. Yeah. You lift up. Or an umbrella. Let me tell you the best way to travel. I'll tell you right now. It's with that bag and then the carry-on suitcase that has the the laptop zipper in the front. Oh, you love the pocket. Oh. You love the pocket. I die for the pocket. Yeah. The, actually, the most recent suitcase I got had um, adapters for every country in it. Yeah. It's amazing to see yeah, the way you guys are evolving, but I can also tell that it's distinctly based on your consumer needs and what they want. Yeah, and also if you just think think about things like, of course, it you know people are like, when is Away coming out with a tote bag? And we've been working on it, but the reason it's taken so long is because we're like, all right, we're not just going to put another tote bag into the world, right? Like, what what do people need? We're actually making the tote bag because. Our customers have asked for one. They want one that isn't going to fall off the top of their suitcase, but they also want one that like when they get to their destination and they're on a work trip that they can take it to the meeting and it doesn't look like a travel bag. Right. So like how do you incorporate all of that into like a beautiful design to something people want to use every day? And I think it's the same thing with like a backpack. We have a backpack now, but we're working on more iterations based on that. And I think people are like, oh, I don't, I don't know how to design for a customer. It's like, you're just not listening. Right. You know, all we do is listen. We like read all the comments, all of those. We have like processes internally where all of those comments are funneled to the right teams to make sure we're actually listening. Um, and that to me is like the best and most important uh, part of being direct to consumer because we can actually listen to people versus like you make a product, you sell it in a bunch of department stores, and maybe you have like global distribution really quickly, but you don't know what people actually think about your product. And if it's not selling, you don't know why. Like if right. we make something that doesn't sell, we know exactly why. Like we know that, oh, they didn't like, you know, we're not guessing like, oh, maybe they didn't like that color. We know that it was too light or it was too dark or actually had nothing to do with the color and they didn't like where the zipper was. And we take that into account for like the next thing that we make. I really love all of the creative partnerships that you guys do. I love the Minions one. Minions. I love the Pop You're and the Minions one. number one fan. I really am. I talk about it all the time. <laughs> um, and you just had one come out that was all in rainbow for Flower yeah, Shop. with Flower Shop. Um, that was such a delightful partnership. I'm curious in tandem to what you were just saying in terms of taking data from your consumers and seeing what it is they like and, and pivoting towards there. Um, what goes into the process of those creative and strategic partnerships? Well, I think the partnerships is like an inherent sense of who our customer is and what customer segment we're trying to speak to and and what they like. And obviously, there's a lot of overlap in like a ways like core, like stylish younger consumer and like flower shop, like and and the brand Amira's built and um, the kind of, it's always interesting, like, you know, 10 years ago, if I told you, like, a luggage company and a bakery, like, would do a collab, and it would be this 
thing that the internet went wild for and sold out in 13 minutes or what? something. Yeah. Like you'd be like, that's crazy. I mean, even today it's crazy. Um, I didn't know that. But that's crazy. Yeah. Our, our customers have always been asking for brighter colors. Um, we have some, but like, you know, they're more muted. Our, our palette's more muted, but we're like, let's try this out. And actually, I met Amira on a plane. We were on a plane to San Francisco. And we like had imagined doing like, I don't even know what we're talking about. We we're just like, imagine like a photo shoot where there's like suitcases with like sprinkles coming out of them. And a year later, we have this collab. Um, and she had this idea to do the, so flower shop cakes are like every color of the they're rainbow. They're also the greatest cakes in the whole world. Yeah, they're absolutely delicious. Delicious. But also so beautiful. Yeah. And they, you know, it's like a stacked, like layered rainbow cake with sprinkles inside. And she was like, I want suitcases in every color of the rainbow. Um, so we made them and it like not only was like a great brand fit and like a great creative fit, but like fulfilled the customer desire of having super bright colors. Um, and this is where, you know, as much as we listen, we also get it wrong because we were like, oh, we're going to have these. We'll have them in stock for a month. And they sold out on the first day. And now people are like very upset. So we're we're handling that. And that's that's a good problem to have. Totally. Um, but yeah, but I think also like even from this we're learning, we're like, okay, which one sold out the most? Um, never would have guessed uh, Orange was the most popular. So, wow. and, and we've actually, if I look back in our history of collabs, we've only made like one other orange suitcase and it was the NBA one. You know, so there's a lot a lot of things we're, we're learning even from this. We're like, okay, we're going to incorporate orange more into like our next colorway. And that's not something you're going to get from like watching shows and looking at like what's trendy. And, you know, we're just like, like people are making our jobs very easy for us. They're like literally just telling us what we want and we just have to make it. And it's exciting because somebody said to me like, well, doesn't that mean like you're not really building a brand or just like crowdsourcing things? But it's like it's an art form to do it in a very tasteful way and to still do it in an aspirational way. I'm so curious about your growth because I think that luggages, most people just have one set for their whole life. Mm -hmm. But hearing what you just said about Flower Shop, that it's sold out instantly in different colors, it's like your suitcases at this point have become collector's items. And it's an amazing business because what used to be a business where it was like you have one customer and you've attracted that one customer like only one time in their lifespan, now you have people that are return customers buying suitcases and housing them and keeping them for their life. So yeah. That's, that's so interesting to me in terms of your growth, if you can speak to it a little bit. Yeah. Well, that to me is like the best part of all this is that we've changed consumer behavior, right? Yes. So even, even of our, like, by the way, our suitcases have lifetime warranties. You're not meant to buy more than one set, you know? I have six in my apartment Yeah, right now. But, but, like, you're not, like, for us, <laughs> you know, that, it was so crazy when we were first starting the company, we were talking to investors, they were, like, to them, the lifetime warranty and the fact that the suitcases last forever was, like, a big problem. They're, like, you can't build a business out of this. People just build one. You know, there are companies that exist out there that, like, make things that are designed to break so that you buy more. And we're, like, we're not doing that, but we're going to build this brand in a way that makes people come back. If it's not for more suitcases, it's going to be for other things. Like the vision was always for a bigger travel brand where we make more products. But even if you just think about wheeled suitcases, just luggage, we created a brand that people are so excited to buy from that now there's like this whole behavior around like, you know, we have customers who have like their work suitcase and their like vacation suitcase. I have that. Uh, you know, like my vacation one has like lots of fun stickers on it. And then like when I go on work trips, I just have like my monogram black one. Chic. <laughs> yeah. But it's just, but it's, but that's the thing. And or people like see like the flower shop collab and they're like, oh, I need to add to my collection. Um, and I think doing that, like that, that was like, that was a very away thing. And like, I'm super proud of that. Um, and, and that's just like really because we're creating things that, that people, that people really want, you know, we're not. We're not getting people to come back because, like, their stuff's breaking or it's not good or, um, like, we're not tricking anyone into anything. But we ha we did, you know, from the beginning, we were always conscious that if we couldn't do that, that we still had a scalable business. So the business was built around, you know, if someone only ever buys one suitcase, can we still make this work? And, and that's how we built the business. And then we realized over time that it was going to be much bigger than that. I've asked you this question before, but not on the podcast, but... Away really is a company for everybody, and it's yeah. not for 
a specific demographic. It's not super expensive. It's not, you know, something that like breaks in five seconds. But what goes into or what went into the thought process of designing a company that's meant for everybody? You know, it's so funny because I am really proud of that fact, but I think it's it's like hard to talk about as a brand person because if you go into it trying to make something for everybody, then nobody will love it. You know what I mean? Where it's just like, it just becomes like a very mass market thing. Um, and I was super aware of that from the beginning. I don't, I, we didn't go into it saying we're going to build a brand for everybody. We went into it saying, let's build a brand that like just directly addresses what our future customers will need. And I think that is what's drawn everybody in. So we never went in saying like, oh, we're going to build like uh, a millennial brand or this or that. Like it wasn't, it wasn't specific to a demographic, but it was specific to um, to a set of needs that travelers had. And basically what – because we addressed those needs directly, it, you know, everyone has those needs when they travel. So that's that's what pulled everybody in. Um, but that's that's a very different approach from saying – let's make something for everyone because then what you end up with is like some super bland like mass market thing that's like not exciting for anyone. I'm like really proud of the fact that we've built a brand that spans generations, that spans like, you know, we have customers who who think that our price point is really affordable and know that they're getting like a really amazing suitcase for like a super affordable price. And then we have um, we have customers who like maybe spend all year like saving up for a suitcase and this is a big purchase for them. But both of those customer groups value the brand and the suitcase the same way, which which like we're really proud of. Um, so I think it's important to build something that means something. Um, and I'm excited by the fact that Away means something a little different to everyone because it, that it's like and it's just like travel you know what I mean like when you travel and you go to a place it could mean like Paris could mean something totally different to you than it does to me but like the fact that we have this emotional connection to it is what's important and that's the way we've always thought about building our brand there's one particular story of your brand story that I absolutely love because I think it speaks to you as an entrepreneur and a creative problem solver and it's your launch story with the coffee table book. Yeah. Um, so we we had like, I mean, we had a self-imposed deadline uh, to launch before Christmas of 2015. Um, great time to launch a product, like the gift giving right. time. People are spending. gift guides. Yeah. People are spending. It's the best time. Yeah. PR is like thirsty for, like editors like thirsty for new products. Um, so highly recommend doing it if you can. Um, but... Around in around September, actually, this was like the week before Burning Man. I what what was I thinking going to Burning Man? Like when you're launching, I was gonna say, I cannot believe that you. I don't know. I can't even remember. Let me go. (laughs) (laughs) Just the week before Burning Man. Good friend. I haven't gone since, so that says a lot. Um, So the week before Burning Man, August 2015. We realized that there was no way in hell we were going to have the suitcases, like, ready to ship out. But we had, like, this big launch, like, plan and uh, this, like, strategy that we were excited about. And we were working out of a WeWork at the time. And Steffler sits me down. She was like, what are we going to do? And I'm like, well, we'll just launch later. And she's like, no, that's not an option. Um, By the way, it was totally an option. But I think part of why Away has grown so quickly is that Steph and I always push each other to, like, do kind of like unnecessary extreme things. Um, She's like, that's not an option. We have to launch. And I was like, oh God, okay, it's not an option. What are we going to do? And we literally sat in this tiny room in a WeWork space in like the financial district. And we're like, okay, we we can line up all this press. We can do this. Like, what are we going to do to get people to talk about the brand? Like we should still sell stuff. There's a great time to sell stuff. Um, But it has to be really true to the brand that we're building. And I was like, I know, we'll write a book. She was like, "What?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah. We'll um, we'll get Alexa, my friend Alexis, who's like a writer. She'll like look at a freelance for us, and she can write this book." And we were literally just like brainstorming. And by the other day, we'd come up with this idea to um, interview forty people in our network that were like tastemakers. So not not God, the book would be so different if we did it today. <laughs> um, 
But, like, people who were, like, respected in their communities and had good taste, like, um, I remember the Sweet Green founders were in the book, um, and, and just people who, like, could talk about it. So, uh, and they would tell us their travel stories, and um, we realized later that, like, we needed photos and didn't have the rights or the money for any, like, travel photos. So we asked people to contribute their photos as well. Um, and we would design, like, this beautiful book in this, like, really beautiful like collector's box and inside there would be a gift card for $225 which is how much the first suitcase was going to be um and the reason we did this was like this was a time when a lot of brands were coming out with um like products on kickstarter or pre-orders and that to me was like super depressing like I've ordered, I've pre-ordered so many things that just like never shipped. The whole concept of a pre-order to me was like really lame. And we didn't want to launch a Kickstarter product because again, we weren't launching like a new invention. We were just launching like a really thoughtfully designed suitcase. And imagine a Kickstarter for like that a yeah. thoughtfully designed suitcase with yep. a laundry bag, like no. Um, so none of those things worked for us, which is why we didn't go down that route. But what we wanted to build was a brand. And I actually think this book was the best thing that ever happened to us. So we did it. We, I, like, went to Burning Man. I, like, set up all these interviews. You're like, bye, Steph. Yeah. I'm going off the map for, like, No, but ever. I, like, I found um, – I, I convinced uh, my friend to do it. We're, like uh, – I set up all these interviews right before I left. And I remember, like, as we were driving, like, in the RV, I was like, okay, we're about to lose service. I'm, like, connecting her with, like, the last few interviews for the book. And then I came back and she had done all of them. And I was like, okay, I'm sorry. I'm never leaving again. That was really stupid. But this whole st- – I love this story so much because it's such a testament to being malleable as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And I think that so many, like, young professionals set themselves up against sometimes, like, unattainable expectations. But then also, like, have this, like, tunnel vision that doesn't also allow them to, like, shift with the world around them that – and you need to constantly evolve. Yeah, I think that I think that's like a super important thing that you just said. The fact that like we needed to set these expectations for ourselves that like weren't really that necessary. Like no one told us we had to launch. I mean, we had investors at the time, but like no one was like you have to launch before Christmas. Right. Launches get delayed all the time, but we like had set it up for ourselves that like we were going to launch at this time. But the important part isn't that we said we're going to launch by Christmas by selling this, by doing this exact thing. And I think you can set like crazy expectations for yourself if you give yourself the flexibility to, to do it in a different way and to be malleable and to like come up with new ideas, or um, or vice versa, where if you like tell yourself you have to do something exactly a specific way, then you have to give yourself the flexibility to do that on a different timeline. But if you're saying, I have to do this thing by this time, and that's the only way it's going to happen, then you're just, like, setting yourself up for failure. Speaking of investors, I would love to hear a little bit about how you and Steph went into the investor stage of your business. Yeah, it's um, if we actually think about the early stages of investment, we were trying to get people, like, our very first investment deck was all about this travel brand that we wanted to build. And I think looking back now, people were like, oh, yeah, great. Yeah, I would have invested in that. But no one was interested in that. You know, we talked about building a brand like Sweet Green or SoulCycle, like brands with communities, and that we wanted to build a travel brand in the space um, that would open up a lot of doors to sell different things from luggage to apparel to all the things we're doing now, basically. Um, but that was not like a sellable idea no one right. was like community i'll yeah. buy into that right like, yes everyone's like uh. so we actually changed our pitch and we were like we're gonna start the warby parker for luggage and we used to work at warby parker and people are like oh i get it which is crazy because it, it distills what we're doing into s- such a small thing but what we learned about investors is that they love pattern recognition so you tell them that's why like every pitch is like it's Uber for this or Airbnb for that. A reference point. Yeah, they just need that reference point of something that's been exciting. It means that you're like dumbing down your idea to whatever. Like I didn't feel amazing about the pitch, but like but people got it. You know what I mean? Like, And I think, I think that's so important to realize when you're going out for investment that you might have a big vision, but inve- one – in investors, and I'm saying this from the other side too because I've started investing a lot, where like investors don't know what's going on 
in your head. So they're looking for a reference point. They're looking for something that's been successful in the past. And they're and then once once you can click with them on that, then you can dive into the things of like, what's the pain point you're trying to solve? Like, why are you why are you the best person in the world to solve this? And like, and how are you going to do it? And luckily for us, that worked whether we were pitching it as like this broad travel brand or just as like a direct to consumer luggage company. Um, like either way, there were pain points to solve. We were equipped to do it, and like we had a plan. Um, and and it ultimately boils down to that. But I think um, I, I, mean, I hate to say it, but sometimes like you come in with a really big vision and people don't get it, and and you just have to like water it down a little bit. Did you ever feel like you were at a disadvantage being a woman and being two female founders? No, and I think um, it's it's so funny because, well, one, our very first like institutional investor what is a woman. Um, Yuri Kim from Forerunner Ventures um, le- co-led our seed round. Um, I think that because we had like, you know, Steph and I did a ton of work like behind the scenes just like practicing our pitch like we just we had so much conviction in what we were doing and how we were doing it and um you know we'd read like every blog post on the planet like you know first round capital um disease like amazing posts for like first time entrepreneurs and we'd like read all of them like really digested all this stuff and we um you know something we never lacked was confidence and um I say this all the time like were we is it possible that we were discriminated against because we were two women? Probably. Did we notice it? No. And I think it's just like when you have that level of like, one, we were naive. Two, we were just super confident. Um, so we probably didn't notice like all of the like microaggressions that happen towards women. I think I think that's the hardest too because it's like if you walk into a room and someone does something inappropriate or like harasses you and it's obvious, you're just like, and I think that's a lot of the stories that we hear, like, you know, during the Me Too movement. Like, when it's obvious, it's easy to walk away from that. You don't know if the investor, the male investor that you're talking to is, like, you know, checking his phone or, like, not really listening, like, because you're a woman or because, like, you're just bad at presenting. Right. You know? So I think it's, like, those little, like, microaggressions that that are the toughest to solve for. And, um, and we definitely encountered those. And there, we definitely encountered people who didn't invest and didn't like our pitch or, like, weren't into us, and and that's fine. Um, but we never, like, walked out of a room feeling like it's because we're women. It's amazing to hear that you are now passing the torch and investing yourself. What are you most interested in investing in right yeah, now? I'm, um, I mean, I'm not – I don't think I'm ever going to be one of those people that invest in things, like, I don't know about because then I can't be helpful. Right. Um, you know, so I get – like I'll get pitched for like a fintech startup and I'm like, sorry, I have no idea what you're talking about. Sounds amazing, but I have no idea. Um, so yeah, new consumer brands. And I think to me it's so interesting. And, and a, a lot of – a big reason why I invest is because I learn so much from these pitches. So there's um, there's a new underwear company that I – I can't mention it yet, but that I just invested in it. But I remember they are telling me about like how they're going to bring it to market and I asked them questions like, oh, how many people do you have on your email list now? And they like looked at me like I was crazy. They're like, what? No, we have like a text list. Or like, what? we're going to reach our customers this way. And it was like this whole like Gen Z way of thinking that I was like, oh my God, I'm like an old, like I don't know how to reach this group of customers anymore, which is so funny, but I just like learned so much through them. And to me, it's like really exciting that there's this new generation launching these brands. But I think you know, same, it's like consumer brands that are solving problems, consumer brands that um, have like a real point of view on why they should exist and, and a white space that they're filling. That's really exciting. What do you think that entrepreneurs should be more transparent about with each other? Like how hard it is. Um, I like I, I feel like there's so much, especially on social media, of like how glamorous and how fun it is and like all the cool things that you get to do. And no one ever talks about how hard it is and like, how, um, you know, how often you get rejected and, like, how that does, like, a lot to your psyche and, like, to your confidence. And I always, like, I always want to encourage, like, openness and vulnerability. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think that's the number one thing. Like, not just what entrepreneurs should talk about with each other, but, like, but everyone. Like, the more vulnerable you are, the more you have the space to to grow and get mm-hmm. help. Like, actually, the more 
the more I admit what I don't know or what scares me, that's actually when I find that like people are most willing to help or teach me. And that's, that's when I grow as a person. So I think that's so important. Like, um, if you go into anything being like, I have to know everything, I can't be scared. And like, I don't want that to be what anyone takes away from anything I say, because like, if you're just confident and not scared all the time, then like, you're not giving yourself the room to grow. There was something that I posted yesterday. It was a comment that Cleo Wade said back to somebody who commented on her photo announcing her pregnancy. Mm-hmm. I saw that. Yes. I saw that. Um, and essentially what it was is someone commented on her Instagram saying, I don't know why all of these women, once they hit the top, decide to get pregnant and it basically ruins their careers. And Cleo obviously clapped back immediately. And I love to touch on this subject because I do think that as a young entrepreneur myself, I have been told so many different iterations of what it means to have it all. I've been told that I can have it all, but not all at once. I can told I've been told that I can only have the career. I can I've been told that I can just have a family and a quiet life, but you are like literally a shining beacon of having it all. Jen just got engaged. Hi, Stuart. <laughs> You're probably not gonna listen, but hey. He listens to all my podcasts. I had a feeling you would. I do want to talk about what that means to you having it all especially in this really exciting moment of your life one of just getting a 1.4 billion dollar valuation and also being engaged and about to get married you know I I agree with everything you said and I disagree with everything you said because like I think all of it rings true at some point and I think what it comes down to is what's important to you something that Cleo said in her response that really resonated with me was that I'm not having a moment I'm having a life and um and yeah, I think from the outside, definitely looks like I have it all. Like, just got engaged with this like amazing company. I just got a puppy. Um, oh my god, pup, I'm like, puppy ever, by the way. I'm like, I cannot wait to see her today. Um, and I, it, but all of those things, like, if if you dig into it, it's like, yes, I'm engaged to someone who lives on the other side of the country, and we like have to sacrifice a lot to even like see each other, and we have to like plan ahead, and um, and it's like not a traditional relationship or um. Or I've built this company but the expense of, like, some friendships because I haven't been able to be, like, super present as a friend in the past. So I think what I, th- what I think every person needs to understand is that as a human who's, like, evolving, your, your set of, like, what's important to you is going to be different at any point in time and that you have to give – you have to decide what's important to you and, like, give yourself to those things. And what's important to me today – might not be the same things that are important to me next year or three years from now. Certainly different from what was important to me five years ago. Um, but you have to give yourself that freedom. I don't think it's like you can't decide like, oh, like building a family is important for me. So that's the only thing I'm going to think about for the rest of my life because then you're not like – you're crazy if you don't think your priorities are going to change, you know? Totally. And for some people that may never be a priority and that's fine. But like I think happiness – and like success comes from from knowing like what what's actually important to you, and that's not going to be the same for two people. So with the new valuation, what does that mean for the future of away? Um, it honestly means that we get to to build out our vision in a really big way, and we've always had this big vision. Um, but it means that we are equipped with the capital to to do it better, and in some ways faster, and to do it more thoughtfully. Um, you know, obviously because we're not, um, we're not thinking about like capital needs. We, we can build the business in a very thoughtful way, but also in a really big way. Um, I think a lot of the things that, you know, people are just like, oh, well it's money. So that means they're just going to like spend it and and grow bigger. But we, we want to do it like in a, in a way that will last for a really long time. Um, and that means like bringing on like, incredible new leadership to to help us build this, um, you know, rethinking the way we're opening all of our stores and creating all of our new products. So it feels like, very much feels like the next phase of the company, um, you know, going from like a scrappy startup to like a real long-lasting brand. What's your biggest tip for somebody who wants to build a brand today? Make sure you have a reason for doing it. Like don't do it just because you're like, I'm going to build a brand. Like, make sure there's a need that you're fulfilling, like we talked about, and um, and that you have a real point of view on it. What is it that you feel most insecure about looking forward at your career, having achieved success at a, at a young age? Um, I think a lot 
so it might be weird to say 32, but I think a lot about my legacy and and like what it is that like people remember me for. And um and I think that because I'm so open to the idea of change and, and doing something new, like I'm I'm like in this for the long haul and I like want to build a brand that like really resonates and like lasts like far beyond me. But I also don't know like what exactly my place is in that as as the company evolves or as I evolve as a person. Um, and I and I think I'm like surrounded by people who are doing it in all different ways, which is exciting. But I I um yeah, I don't I have no idea what what the rest of my career looks like. Um, uh, but I'm also just like really excited by that because it's not like it wasn't like we set out to do this and build a company and have it be worth a billion dollars and like, okay, cool, that's it, done. You know, like I look at it away and I'm like, there's so much more that we need to do. Um, so I'm just focused on that right now. Um, but yeah, it's a, uh, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy that you, you say that because it's like some days I'm just like, God, it's been like five years. Like we've been doing this for so long. And other days I'm like, I can't believe it's only been five years and, um, and we have so much more to do, but yeah, I don't, I try not to worry about it too much. And I think if I had tried to predict what I was going to be doing when I was like in my early twenties, I would have been totally wrong. Um, so I'm definitely not going to try to predict the future now. For more, subscribe to the Friend of a Friend podcast on the Apple podcast page and our newsletter on friendofafriend.com.